just that it is about the living, because it's specifically about humans. You, I don't think you would try to apply teleology to animals or plants or something like that. But human beings are different from all living creatures in that they have they choose ends and choose means to achieve the ends. Now, I am not going to enter the question, could monkeys be studied on the basis of the principle of teleology? Because some simple things they can do, for instance, if uh, if the banana is too high and you put a rod there, then sooner or later the monkey will come to the idea of reaching... The, and suppose the monkey cannot climb up, then he'll get the banana anyhow. And I don't have any interest in pursuing this, you see, because some animal scientists make a big thing and they try, try to prove that uh, they can even be taught to talk and develop a vocabulary and so on. So we are really much closer relatives of the monkeys and apes especially uh, than uh, uh, originally thought. I have no interest in pursuing this. but. Studying human action, and that's the famous title, the title of the famous book of Ludwig von Mises, describes it all. Human action is different from animal action or any other action you, you can have in, in our world because it's subject to the principle of teleology. So, uh, going back to Aristotle, uh, we can say that Aristotle picked the wrong principle. He thought that he can explain the phenomenon of interest on the basis of causality. Because most things which were to, of interest to Aristotle and his contemporaries had to do and could be solved with the uh, uh, principle of causality. So it was simple for him to assume that, okay, studying interest, uh, uh, we can use the principle of causality. So then he said, well, sheep can breed sheep. Cattle can breed cattle. But gold cannot breed gold. And because of that, interest has to be, interest has no place in the natural, under natural law. That's what he said. And that's where he went astray, because it doesn't follow. He just picked the wrong 
tools to try to explain the phenomenon of interest. But if he approached the problem of interest through teleology, which I think didn't exist at that time, but with his genius he could have <laughs> introduced it, then the question is quite different. Does interest serve a purpose? Could it be that some people have certain ends and the way to achieve this end is to pick the tool which involves exchange of wealth and income? He didn't ask this question. But had he asked this question, I think the, he would have saved uh, thousands of years of trouble. <laughs> because, I mean, the world who followed Aristotle so slavishly, it wouldn't occur to anybody to question uh, Aristotle in saying that on the basis of causality, interest is against natural law. And then, of course, Christianity came later, and they just embraced Aristotle and uh, dressed it up with, uh, with uh, uh, religious embe embellishment and what preserved. And then it took all this time to get rid of it. And um, I should just mention in a few words the role of uh, Protestantism, which, uh, although it started from a disagreement on religious principles, but very soon Protestantism extended its interest by loosening up all the prescriptions which, after Aristotle, through St. Thomas of Aquinas, they imposed on society. And that was very beneficial for uh, society. In fact, it started commerce, it made, uh, opened up various uh, ways of commerce, that made it possible to have this exchange of income and wealth and a lot of other things. So it was of great benefit to society. So we have to recognize the, the uh, merit of Protestantism in uh, loosening up the, the restrictions which the church placed on uh, exchange of income and wealth. Now, uh, we already mentioned one instrument which was exempted from usury laws, and that was rent charges, and we did spend quite some time on that.
and it's very interesting to analyze. And it's also very interesting that most textbooks on economics just don't mention that interesting instrument. Uh, I'm not going to repeat it, but if you look back what uh, uh, we said about it, you will realize that it goes right to the heart of the matter. It uh, uh, points out or points to the productivity of capital on the one hand and the uh, rate of interest on the other, if you analyze what such a rent charge is. This was one of the ways of circumventing usury laws, a very wide uh, loophole, but there it was, and it was used, and it was used by the, uh, by the church itself, because the church had vast stretches of land, agricultural land, and the church itself had a need to uh, have future wealth, you see. I mean, the monks themselves were subject to death, but they didn't want to uh, have their wealth or the wealth of their religious order to disappear with their generation, and they wanted to perpetuate themselves. And that meant that they had to have rent charges, and, and that's, that's what they did. Now, there's a second uh, very important and very interesting device which was used as a kind of circumvention of the usury laws, and that is known as the triple contract. Uh, the triple contract which was used to camouflage a simple loan transaction. And in, in doing so, it escaped the uh, consequences of the usury laws. <coughs> so that was in, during the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, especially the early Renaissance. And as the name suggests, triple contract. The three contracts are telescoped or uh, combined into one. So let's look at it. The three contracts were as follows. But here there are two uh, protagonists, two players of the drama. The, the, you don't have to get up a lot. The lender and the borrower. And it's basically the same kind of transaction. Lending a thousand dollars for uh, stream of interest payments at the rate of $50 per annum, and we know this is the same as 5% interest. 
but you shouldn't say interest because that's against the usual. So we have these two same protagonists, and the first contract is partnership contract between the lender and borrower sharing the profit of or loss in the borrower's business. So the borrower is the entrepreneur, he sets up a business and borrows the sum, invests in the business and the first contract is simply a partnership contract about the business can be successful or it can be unsuccessful and accordingly uh, they just have to share if it's a profit share the profit if it's a loss then they just have to share the loss and that's perfectly acceptable to canonical and secular authorities now the second contract is an insurance contract through which the borrower, the entrepreneur, guarantees the restitution of capital, the entire sum of, in this case, a thousand dollars, put up by the lender against losses. So at the end, I mean, every contract is for a limited period of time. So the second contract says that the end of the contract, the entire amount which the lender put at the disposal of the borrower will be paid back. Okay. That's an insurance contract. Now the third contract is an annuity contract through which the borrower is guaranteed a fixed income and this fixed income he would pay to the lender provided that the lender gave up his right to his share of profits, you see. So according to, to the first contract, the lender would share his profits. These are the pure entrepreneurial profits which after having paid all uh, business expenses remains, that's the pure entrepreneurial profits, but Against this annuity contract, the lender gives up his rights to the, to the profits for the benefit of the benefit of the borrower. So what it, uh, this is really is like equity of capital stock in the enterprise has been legally converted into a bond paying interest. But you see, if you put the three contracts together, you don't have to use the word interest anymore. Whereas using 
the word interest, you can simplify the whole thing, but they just had to go round about because interest was a bad word. You, you must not say interest because that will bring the full strength of the usury laws against you. So this was a means in a way to reduce the rate of interest because because uh, the, the risk uh, premium can be taken out. There's no more. Uh, this is completely legal. All three transactions are, or contracts are legal and acceptable under the canonical and secular laws. Um, now, this contract is very revealing for the reason that we now see the contact between the marginal productivity of capital and pure interest, you see? And if you recall what we talked about the other day, uh, the uh, triple entry... Uh, uh, bookkeeping. Not bookkeeping. Triple... Revenue accounting. Of revenues, the principle of triple entry. Remember, there were three players the capitalist, the entrepreneur, and the manager. You see? And the problem was how to subdivide the revenue of the business in the most equitable way between these three. And also establish a seniority between the three accounts which had to be set up according to this principle of triple uh, revenue accounting. Now, if you compare that with the uh, triple contract, you will see where there were only two participants, you will see a lot of similarities and the basic idea is that they both address the problem of exchanging uh, wealth and income. So, so that's the big thing which uh, is underlying a lot of, there are a lot of different business contracts, a lot of different um, uh, pension agreements, annuity agreements, mortgages, name it. And in none of these cases is it obvious that there is an exchange, at the very bottom of it, maybe buried under several layers of legal and economic uh, conditions, you will always find an exchange of wealth and income. So you see, I am just trying to point out that this was missing in all the studies of interest. And that's why they failed to do a satisfactory job. But once you see this, the French says, cherche 
chercher la femme, look for the woman. If there's a mystery story and you don't find any satisfactory explanation, that you find the woman and that will immediately put all the pieces in place and the jigsaw puzzle is solved. Very much the same here. Chercher the exchange of wealth and income. And if you find it, you will understand what is happening. Now, I suppose we are all familiar with the uh, double entry book keeping. This is a, a very great principle, goes by, already mentioned it, goes back to Luca Pacioli, a mathematician in Italy in the 13th century. He went from universities to universities, and believe it or not, in the 13th century, in Italy alone, you could find almost 20 universities all over the country. It's surprising, but it's true. Now, Luca Pacioli went through 15 of them. He taught at one university after the other, and so he had a very wide uh, knowledge, not only of mathematics, but also the different conditions all over the country, which had, of course, maritime business, it had um, fruit growing, the wine industry, just name it, everything, and of course, import-export. So, he was in an excellent position to study the commercial conditions, of, uh, co commercial relationships in the country. And of course, in commerce, uh, arithmetic is very important. <laughs> if, you, if arithmetic is your weak point, you better not go into commerce and, because <laughs> you make a mistake in your calculation and your annual income <laughs> goes. So he wrote a book on mathematics and one chapter, side line, he didn't give it great prominence to it. In fact, it was chapter 11, where he worked out the uh, principle of double entry bookkeeping. And it's a very simple principle. It says that the end of every single business day, you have to, uh, let's use the word, square the book. Okay, so there's a ledger where the income and outgo are recorded, and then the bottom line, add up both columns, and he says it has to be zero. So the income and the outgo on every day have to balance. Now that, of course, is just theory, it doesn't work out that way. So he had to invent a phantom item, right? And what was the phantom item? Hmm? Equity value. 
Well, capital, there are various words for it. Goodwill. Hmm? Goodwill. Goodwill, capital, equity, equity and so on. You see? Which, which really meant that if you take a good business, a solid business bringing profit, year after year after year, if you sell out, we wind it up. Uh, even if it's the most excellent business, you won't get what it is worth to you. Because a big chunk of your capital is the goodwill. That you have built up a good name. And you can say it on your table that that established in 1830. And the longer your business has been around, presumably the higher your uh, the higher your uh, uh, goodwill is. So th this simple idea of goodwill made double entry bookkeeping possible. And I think it's uh, now 11 o'clock. It's time to uh, have a coffee break. break. But in 15 minutes we come back and I want to continue. And uh, I wasn't very successful this morning because <laughs> practically no questions and comments from the floor. But let's make sure that, that after the break there'll be a little more give and take and activity because that's just the idea. We have, have to have a discussion. All right, thank you. Thanks and, very much.